On July 5, 1998, 48-year-old Candace Walters was ready for a romantic adventure. Her boyfriend, 42-year-old William Neal, known as Cody, was picking her up. They were going for a romantic weekend in Las Vegas. Now, Cody had been a little flaky lately. Her friends and family, including her adult daughter, Holly, who she was very close to, had doubts about him. Because even though he was always flashing cash around, he never seemed to have a real job. And in fact, Candace really hadn't told anyone this, but he owed her $6,000. Cody also had a tendency to be pretty secretive. He had never shown Candace exactly where he lived. He told her that he had huge homes in Las Vegas and Denver. But now he promised her she would finally get her happy ending. Not only was he giving Candace her money back, but she was also going to get a new car. So she got dressed up in a white sundress and fixed her hair. And after they had been driving for a while, they pulled up into the driveway of a townhouse at 12055 West Shenango Drive in Lakewood, a quiet suburb northwest of Denver. Cody had told Candace they were going to pick up the new vehicle, a forerunner, at this residence. They went inside, and the house was dark. The windows had been covered with butcher paper, which partially blocked out the sunlight. He told Candace to sit down in a chair. Now, journalist Steve Jackson wrote a very long and in-depth article in Westward, and he also wrote a book about the case called Love Her to Death. According to Steve Jackson, at this point, Candace didn't notice that there was something else in the room, something wrapped in black plastic and sealed with duct tape. Candace had no way of knowing that this was one of Cody's other girlfriends, 44-year-old Rebecca Holberton, the owner of that townhouse, and that she had been dead for days. Cody told Candace that he was going to put a blanket over her head to hide the surprise until he was ready. So he did. Then he walked into the other room. So she couldn't see when he came out holding a maul. That's a tool with a long, heavy handle, kind of like a baseball bat. It has an axe on one side and a hammer on the other side. He came up behind Candace and started hitting her so hard that pieces of her skull flew across the room. After that, he urinated on her head and shoulders, wrapped her head in white plastic, and moved her body a few feet off to the side, leaving her covered with the blanket. Soon, he was out on the town again, using Candace's debit card to party with other women and to lure his next victim back to that house of horrors. Before his killing spree was over, three women would die inside that house, and one would be tortured and sexually assaulted Candace could not have known that her dream man was actually a con man and an axe murderer. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Candace's daughter, Holly Walters, described her mom to investigators as her best friend. She was her only child, and Candace had raised her as a single mom. So when her mom didn't show up after the 4th of July weekend, she got concerned immediately. She told police that the last time she saw her mother was on July 1st, 1998. 
Her mom had been bartending at a hotel, but Holly had recently hired her mother to work for her real estate financing company. And even though she had her doubts about her mom's boyfriend, Cody, she said that when Candace told her that she was going to Vegas with him and he promised her all these presents, Holly tried to be happy and positive because she wanted her mom to be happy. You know, working with fraud cases and murder cases, I've seen this so many times. I've been through it in my own life. We want the people we love to be happy. And so sometimes it's so hard when you see red flags in a person who is dating someone close to you. You want to warn them, but you also don't want to push them away. And it's, it's such a hard situation to be in. So I really feel for Holly here. When Holly didn't hear for her mom, she immediately knew that something was terribly wrong. She drove home from a trip to Missouri to look for her. And when she couldn't find her, she reported Candace missing on Wednesday. Now, during this time, she told investigators that she was frantic. She called Cody, and he told her her mom had had a minor accident, and he promised she would call her. But Candace never called. Holly even drove around Cody's neighborhood. Of course, she had no way of knowing that her mom's body was nearby. But sadly, it was already too late. Now, around the same time that this was going on, two women and a man called the police to say they were with Cody and that he had been holding them hostage for days. One described a scene out of a horror movie. She was a 21-year-old woman named Suzanne. She said that she had been to the house and said that Cody had tied her up and raped her and forced her to watch him kill someone. And then, after all that, he drove her back to Denver. At around the same time, Rebecca Holberton's co-workers were asking for a welfare check. Rebecca was the owner of the townhouse. She had also been dating Cody. She had worked for that company for over two decades and was incredibly reliable. So police officers were making their way to her house, while at the same time, a dramatic scene was unfolding at another home. Cody had three hostages there. He had been holding them at gunpoint and walking them through the process of how he wanted to confess to police. One of the women there was Beth, who he had also been dating. The second woman was Beth's roommate, Suzanne, the woman who Cody had brutally raped and kidnapped. And then at the end of the assault, he drove her back home and told her he wanted to make a plan to confess to police. Cody had told the women, and the male friend who was there, that he was ready to talk. So in a surreal scene, the police paged him after he left the house and he surrendered to them in a parking lot. Once he came in to talk to detectives, he had an incredible story. He confessed to everything. They talked to him for hours, and once he started, it seemed like he couldn't stop talking. He even called and confessed to the news director of a Denver TV station. Before the tape stopped rolling, he had confessed to Suzanne's rape and the murders of three women, 44-year-old Rebecca Holberton, Candace Walters, and a 28-year-old mother of two named Angela Fight. He would go on to plead guilty to 13 counts, including three counts of first-degree murder, two counts of second-degree kidnapping, first-degree sexual assault, criminal extortion, kidnapping, and felony theft. So police knew they had their man, but who was this guy? And what was his relationship to these different women? According to the Associated Press, Cody had claimed to be a painter and a bounty hunter. And at one point, he actually gave tips to Dog the bounty hunter. Later, Dog, whose real name was Dwayne Chapman, clarified that he never paid Cody. 
but he said he had tipped him off about where some people involved with meth dealing may be located. But really, no one seemed to know what Cody did for a living, or really anything else about him. Cody's real name was William Lee Neal. He was born on October 7, 1955, in Virginia. He grew up a military brat. His dad was in the Air Force, and Cody told Westward that he was a good man who had instilled discipline in him. In fact, he seemed to kind of idolize his parents. He said that his mom and dad had a good marriage, and his family told investigators that growing up, Cody's mom called him the golden child. But when he got older, he started to have problems. His dad started drinking, and he said there were a couple of crucial things that happened when he was young and impressionable, things that turned him against women later. Now, I want to preface this by saying that we have to take everything that this serial killer says with a massive grain of salt, because by his own admission, the guy was a pathological liar and a con man. But there are a few things that we do know. He had three sisters and an older brother. He said that he always remembered that at some point when he was really young, his sisters accused him of doing bad things to them. He said they would basically hurt themselves and then blame it on him, and then he would get punished and sometimes beaten. There was another incident that was interesting. He told Westward that when he was 10, he and his brother got busted for stealing some toy cars. And he said they were able to talk the woman who caught them into kind of letting them slide. He said something interesting. He said, But she should have called my dad and had him whip the tar out of me. Maybe if she didn't give me a break, things would have been different. This does kind of go back to the theme of white-collar criminals and people who steal. When they discover that they're able to get away with it and to lie without consequences, they will do it again. He said that another crucial thing happened when he was a young teenager, around 12 or 13 years old. He said that he got into a sexual relationship with a married woman who was several years older than him. He said this made him kind of messed up and confused, even though he enjoyed it in some ways. Some of his family said this relationship never happened. And again, it's so hard to know what was real and what was fantasy with this guy because he lied so much. Cody joined the military when he was 17 years old. Later, he told investigators that he was raped by someone in the military and also molested by a church elder. We don't know if this is true. We just have his word for that. But we do know that he did turn around and victimize others. He molested at least one underage girl. And his sister would later tell one of his wives that Cody was a suspect back in the 80s when a young girl was kidnapped from a gas station and later raped and killed. The sister made a comment. It was something like, he was viewed as a suspect, but eventually the case never progressed any further. After Cody grew up, he took his hate for women into adulthood, but he kind of buried it. On the surface, he was very sexual and a womanizer. But once he sweet-talked women and left trails of rose petals and ran bubble baths for them and gained their trust, he turned on them. He changed everything about himself, even his name. He was married four times, and his first wives knew him as Bill. It was only later, after he moved out west, that he nicknamed himself Cody, or Wild Bill Cody. He kind of styled himself as a cowboy during that time. All of his wives said that he was charming and sweet at first, and then later, he became jealous and controlling. He kind of had a pattern. He would establish trust with them and convince them that he was on their side, and then he would use the information that he got against them later. For example, one of his wives said, 
she told Cody that she'd slept with a married man at one point. So he would use that against her later. He would call her a whore, for example. Or with his fourth wife, who, by the way, was only 19 when they started dating, he would forbid her to leave the house as punishment. Meanwhile, of course, Cody was allowed to do whatever he wanted. It started with S&M fantasies with a lot of his wives. Eventually, sex got rougher. He also coerced his fourth wife, Jennifer, into going along with some of his sexual fantasies. And he would always push it way past the point where she was comfortable. For example, he would coerce her into going into a place where people were having group sex. She would agree to that, but then he would ask her if she would have sex with someone else, and she would say no. Then, she said, he would blindfold her. And suddenly, she was shocked when she realized that another man, not her husband, was having sex with her against her will. The bottom line was, Cody seemed to take pleasure in hurting the women he was intimate with. He forced his wives to go out and work while he stayed home. So he was actually being funded by women. When he separated from his third wife in 1990, her name was Karen. Karen claimed that he stole over $10,000 from her. She said that even after they divorced, he kept calling her with sob stories and asking to borrow money. He started dating his fourth wife, Jennifer, in 1992. By this time, he was 36. She had just turned 19. She was a dancer at a strip club. She'd had a tough home life and just wanted someone to be kind to her and to be able to stop dancing. She said that at first, she was charmed by Cody's promises and his sweet talk. He always had cash to splash around to buy her gifts, and he was a good tipper, even though, again, no one seemed to be sure what his exact job was. They had a whirlwind romance. They moved in together pretty much immediately. They married in Vegas just a few months after their first date. He said he was part owner of a security company called Dynamic Control Systems. And she believed him. I mean, he always seemed to have money for whatever they wanted to do. But according to Jennifer, the good times did not last long. Right after she had their daughter, their only child, she became increasingly alarmed by her husband's violence and terrified of what he would do to her. She also suspected that he may have molested their daughter while she was in the bathtub. If Jennifer left the house without his permission, he would punish her. Jennifer knew she had to get out of there, and finally she left. They briefly reconciled later. That's when he told her that he had embezzled money. He said he'd stolen around $70,000 from Dynamic Control Systems. It seems that that company was legitimate, and he did do some work for them for some time, but they never commented on his status with the company or the stolen money. But whatever happened there, it was obvious that Cody had burned his bridges. Finally, Jennifer left him for good. According to court records, the couple divorced in August 1996. At that time, Cody claimed that he had $51,000 in debt, listed his occupation as unemployed alarm technician, and said his only assets were a 1993 Toyota and $4 in cash. That same year, he met Rebecca Holberton at a party and soon moved into her townhouse in Lakewood. Rebecca had relocated to Colorado from Oregon after her divorce. She'd been working for the company, U.S. West Communications, for 25 years. Colleagues described her as a wonderful employee, incredibly reliable, someone, they said, who always had a smile on her face. Over the next two years, Cody basically sponged off Rebecca he ended up borrowing over $60,000. Later, when victim impact statements were read in court, Rebecca's ex-husband, who was an airline pilot, described her as a kind, gentle person 
who was always smiling. But it seemed that after she started dating Cody, she became more reclusive. She started covering the windows with butcher paper. Supposedly, this was for renovations, but they never seemed to get done. Her family said in court later, they believed that at this point, Rebecca was starting to figure out that Cody was a scammer. They had no idea that over a two-year period, he borrowed around $70,000 from Rebecca, and she was becoming more and more worried about never being able to get it back. In late 1997, Cody met Candace Walters. She was bartending at the Sherwood Hotel where Cody hung out, and he started seeing her on the side. So he was lying to both Candace and Rebecca about the fact that he was dating other women and about the fact that he was gonna pay back that money. Candace's daughter, Holly, talked to the court about how her mom had raised her all by herself and how close they were. Candace met Cody while she was bartending at the hotel where she worked. Cody came in there all the time and he was known as a player with money. Now, while he was dating both of these women and Suzanne's roommate, Beth, Cody met 28-year-old Angela Fight. Even though Cody was only five foot eight and pretty average looking, he had a way of charming women and especially of saying what they wanted to hear right at the time when they were most vulnerable. Angela was working as a dental assistant. She had just gotten out of a rocky relationship with her estranged husband, Mike. Mike had been arrested for domestic violence. But despite the fact that they split up, Mike later told the Denver Post that he always hoped that somehow they would work things out someday. He knew she was dating Cody, but they had two small children and had been together for eight years. Mike said that Cody had swept Angela off her feet too. Angela told her family that Cody had been a hitman for the mob, though apparently he said he only went after the bad guys. It sounds kind of like he watched a lot of the TV show Dexter. After meeting Angela, very soon he promised her he would buy a dream house for her and for the kids. He also told her, as he did with many other women, that he had once been a bounty hunter, which of course was totally false. In June 1998, time was running out for Cody. Rebecca had had it with his empty promises. She was about to kick him out of the townhouse. And Candace was closing in on him too. She had made him sign a promissory note, confirming that the several thousand dollars that she had advanced him was in fact a loan. She also told him if he didn't pay her back, she was gonna tell Rebecca what was going on. So Cody was about to be exposed as a con artist to both of these women and almost certainly to the police. He tried to buy some time. He told both women not to worry. They would be paid back. He promised them happily ever after. But he had another type of surprise in mind. Steve Jackson wrote in Westward that on June 30th, Cody, quote, went to the store and bought eye bolts, nylon rope, duct tape, and a seven and a half pound splitting wall, half axe, half sledgehammer, end quote. Prosecutors later said that his motive for killing the women was to cover up his theft. Basically, he knew that he was about to be exposed. And these women were all intelligent, attractive, and successful in their own way. Yet he seemed to have a sixth sense for knowing when they were vulnerable. According to the article in Westward, he came up to Rebecca from behind. He hit her with the maul, 
so hard that he cracked her skull. Then he saved pieces of her skull. He picked them up with an ice cream wrapper. Then he, quote, wrapped her in black plastic like a mummy and placed her against a wall of his apartment, end quote. Even though in many ways these killings were very disorganized and messy, Cody seemed to be trying to keep the blood in one place, probably so that the stains would not alarm his next victim. Then he left and went out and partied. Now, during that time, he saw friends seem completely normal and was drinking and living it up. On July 3rd, he picked Candace Walters up. As we said before, he had told her a similar story. He said that he'd gotten tons of money, they were headed for a new life in Las Vegas. But first, he said there was one thing they had to take care of. They needed to pass by the townhouse to pick up the new forerunner. Of course, that never happened. Because once Candace got there, and before she was able to discover that she'd walked into a house of horrors, he turned on her. After killing Candace Walters, he took her money. He stole from her and Rebecca again. He victimized them after their deaths as well as before. He used their credit cards and accessed their bank accounts. Throughout these horrific killings, he was behaving in public as if everything was completely normal. He had no remorse. What happened next, we heard from the sole survivor of the attacks, Suzanne. In court, she took the stand and described what had happened to her and how Angela Fike had died. She said that she met the man she knew as Cody Neal in 1997 through her roommate, Beth. He was a regular at the bar they went to. He always wore the same thing, a black cowboy hat and skin-tight blue jeans. He was known for being a big tipper and for being super nice and respectful to women. After Beth broke up with the guy she was seeing and started dating Cody, he spent more time hanging around with Suzanne, and she said she developed a soft spot for him. Like everyone else, Suzanne said that he seemed to have a lot of money. Once, she said, he gave her $100 just because he said it was her birthday, even though she said they weren't particularly close friends. He told Suzanne that he was in the mortgage lending business. As always, he kind of had a habit of keeping the lie close to the truth. He would steal other people's stories. For example, in that case, he was actually talking about Candace's business. Then, she said, Cody asked her to work with him. He asked her to fly with him to Las Vegas to meet with some lawyers he said he had. He said he wanted to show her that the job offer was legit. Suzanne hesitated, but she said she felt reassured because after all, this guy was dating her roommate. She'd known him for a while. He seemed normal, like a nice guy. So she agreed to go for one night for a business trip, Sunday, June 5th. Over the weekend, Suzanne, Beth, and Cody all hung out. On Friday night, July 3rd, they were all out at a pizza place, having a great time. She said that at one point, Cody took out a ring and proposed to Beth. Then he laughed and said that he and Beth were just joking around with Suzanne. He had a habit of pulling pranks on people. Of course, this entire time, Suzanne had no idea that Cody already had two bodies back at that house. They bar hopped that night and ended up having dinner at a strip club. As always... Cody was generous because he was paying with Candace's debit card. He bought Suzanne and Beth lap dances. Then on July the 5th, he showed up to pick up Suzanne. 
She was wearing a business outfit, excited for what she thought were meetings with new and important contacts. He told her that he had a surprise for her roommate Beth at a nearby townhouse, and he wanted to stop by there. He justified this, she said, by telling her that what he wanted to do was to do the same thing to her that he was planning to do to Beth. So when they got to the garage, he asked if he could put a bath towel over her eyes to pretend blindfold her. She let him put duct tape over her mouth. Now at this point, you have to realize how diabolical this man is because he knew what he was going to do to her later, and he actually cultivated a personality around that, around pulling pranks and putting blindfolds on people so that later, when he does it, these women won't be alarmed. It's one of the most evil things I've actually ever heard. So this whole time, Suzanne is still thinking this is part of the surprise. She went along with it. Cody had spent a long time building her trust. She could see her feet, but she couldn't really see anything else. She was feeling her way around this dark house. At one point, Cody let her pet a cat. But she started to feel like something was very wrong. Then he led her to a room, and when he told her to sit down, she realized she was sitting down pretty low, and it was a mattress. At some point, he screwed those eye bolts he bought into the floor. He used them to tie Suzanne up on the mattress. Then he cut her clothes off, and he raped her. I am in awe of this woman, not just because she had the presence of mind to be calm and do her best to survive this, but she actually took the stand and was able to talk about what had happened to her in that courtroom when she was just 21 years old. She said, He asked me if I had ever seen a human skull. I said no, and he left the bed and came back with an ice cream wrapper. He pulled out a piece of bone. He held it in front of me, and he was touching it. There was hair on it, and he said, Can you see that? And then he laid it on my stomach. At this point, Suzanne said she was pretty sure she was going to die. She's sitting there looking at the bodies. And on top of that, Cody had told her there were other people inside the house, people who would do much worse things to her than he had. Then he covered her completely with a blanket and left the room. She said during this time, she concentrated on the country music videos that were playing. After a while, she heard him come back. She could hear movement and sounds of duct tape ripping. Then he pulled the blanket off her. She was shocked to see Angela fight, who she knew, tied to a chair. And she said that Angela seemed equally shocked to see her. It turned out that Cody had talked Angie into coming to the townhouse by telling her a similar story to the one he told Candace. He told Angie that he was going to give her a new life and that this was their new home. But when she got there, he tied her to a chair with duct tape. Now, when Suzanne and Angie saw each other, according to Suzanne, it was a surreal scene. Even though these women must have been terrified, both of them tried to keep their cool, at least on the surface. Suzanne said that at one point, Cody seemed calm. In fact, he let them both share a cigarette with him. Then, while they were smoking, he walked out of the room and said that he was going to bring back a treat for the cat. And then, suddenly, Suzanne saw him walk up behind Angela, and to her horror, she saw him hit her from behind. Now, Cody was totally calm as he brought that maul down on Angela's head. He put a bucket underneath her head to capture the blood, and he actually smoked the rest of the cigarette she'd left behind. Then he turned around to Suzanne and said, 
You see how calm and smooth I am. Bet you didn't know that was coming. Then he sexually assaulted her again, while pressing a gun to her head, inches from Angela's dead body. He then tied her up again, and during this time, Suzanne said she was trying her hardest to remain calm. She got an idea. She asked him to sit next to her on the mattress and to hold her hand, and he did. She said she was trying to make sure that he couldn't come up behind her, like he had done with her friend. They stayed on the bed all night, and then, the next morning, he let Suzanne get changed. They got into the car, and he drove her back home. First, he took her to a restaurant and insisted that Suzanne eat. Then, he asked her to rent a movie, The Jackal. She would later tell the court that he said he wanted a living witness to what happened. He told her that he planned to confess to everything he'd done, starting with Suzanne's roommate, Beth. Also, she said, the switch had basically flipped, Now, Cody was acting completely normal. The plan, he said, was to rent a movie, go back home, act like the Vegas trip that had never happened had been fine, and then at some point, tell Beth the truth about what had happened at the house. He had a gun this whole time, and Suzanne was terrified that at any moment he might use it. So they went back to the house, and she did her best to act like everything was normal. They all watched a movie together. After the movie, they went in the kitchen, Suzanne said she started to explain what happened, and then Cody filled in the gruesome details. He got ready to leave, but he threatened the women, saying if they did not follow his instructions exactly, more people would die. At this point, they're both completely terrified, but despite the trauma she had been through, Suzanne testified that she did think to grab her clothes and the stuff she'd had in the townhouse and throw it in a plastic bag, in case, she said, it was needed for evidence later. Then Cody did something else that seems totally bizarre. He asked the women if they wanted to have a male friend with them. So they called a guy named David Kane and asked him to come over. When he got to the door, Cody had a gun. He said David could leave, but if he left, there are going to be consequences to everybody involved. So David, very bravely in my opinion, stayed with these two women. Then Cody started talking. One minute saying he's going to kill himself the next trying to micromanage his police confession. He told them he was going to leave and how and when to call the police. And Ever the control freak told them exactly what to do. Cody was finally arrested. Even though William Cody Neal had a lot of rage against women, and that's putting it mildly, there are elements of a red-collar case here because he had already stolen from his victims. And even if they had revealed the theft to each other and turned him into the police, he would have been facing a fine or maybe a couple of years in jail at the worst. But the rage that took over and the way he turned on these women because they were about to reveal what he really was makes this a classic red-collar case in my mind. We'll never know the full story because obviously this man is a pathological liar, but his eight-hour videotape confession does provide some clues. He said that he was a controlling person. He said he was calm and in control the entire time while he planned and carried out these horrific murders. It was only in the moment where he was actually swinging the mall, he said, that he became like a Highlander. 
He was referring to the character in the TV show Highlander, who is an immortal. And when he kills other immortals, he absorbs some of their powers. And again, he explained how he made things seem like they were just a part of his zany personality so that the women would trust him. For example, he made a point of doing that elaborate prank on Friday night so that when he mentioned to Suzanne they would be in for another surprise, she wouldn't think anything of it. He talked about the women in glowing terms. He called Rebecca Holberton the most gentle, loving, sweetest person you ever knew. He made a point of telling police that he was never, ever mean to her. I guess he meant before he killed her. He was less kind about Candace. He said that he basically had sex with her out of pity and said that she became like a fatal attraction character when she started to want her money back. He said that Candace had threatened to go to the police and that basically... She made demands on his time, which enraged him. He said that his choice of weapons was his way of being humane. He said it was to put them out the best way I knew how, as quickly and as silently and as fairly as I could. He said that he attacked them from behind as part of this mercy killing because he said they were good people and he didn't want them to know what was coming. The reason he left Suzanne alive, he said, was because... I wanted a living witness, so to speak, as a warning to everybody else to don't f*** with me. I've had enough. Like so many narcissistic psychopaths before him, Cody decided to represent himself in court. He did have a lawyer advising him, and this lawyer said he believed that Cody was mentally ill and delusional. But the prosecutors claimed that the killings had been done when he was cold, rational, and calculating. They said, as Cody had, that he was completely in control. He wasn't mentally ill, they seem to be saying, just a psychopath. Cody seemed to relish the special access to materials that he was given by acting as his own lawyer. He seemed to love telling his story to the reporter from Westward and the police. Behind the scenes, by the way, prosecutors wondered, since this was a potential death penalty case, if, by representing himself, Cody was hoping to get a mistrial declared. He was so smart that they worried this could be part of his legal strategy. He was claiming to be sorry for the killings, but really he was acting like he thought he was some kind of celebrity. And in court, like serial killer Ted Bundy, he seemed to enjoy representing himself and the drama of speaking out. After the trial started, on September 20th, 1999, he referred to that day as Yom Kippur, a special day, a day, he said, of forgiveness. Cody said, This is one of the most horrendous things I ever heard of. How could someone do what I've done? I wish I could say I was innocent. There is no excuse for this crime. I can't wash my hands enough for this. He called the women beautiful and said they were innocent. But at the same time, he talked about what he said were mitigating factors, like his alleged sexual abuse of him when he was a child. He definitely seemed to be trying to get sympathy. He said, even a wretched life means something even a wretched life, can change. I do not want to die, for I know I've turned around. He admitted the motive. He said basically it was the fear of getting turned in for taking the money. That, he said, was what precipitated the whole thing. He was found guilty of the murders of Candace Walters, Rebecca Lynn Holberton, and Angela Fight, and he was sentenced to death. But in 2003, his sentence was commuted to life in prison. District Judge Tom Woodford revoked the death sentence because the courts in Colorado had ruled that the law there was unconstitutional. In Colorado, they used a three-judge panel to sentence Cody to death, and the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 
that juries and not judges have to be the ones to impose death sentences. But the judge did give him three consecutive life prison terms without the possibility of parole. At least the victim's family say they're happy that he is behind bars where he can't hurt anyone else. Police say there may be more victims of this man out there. And they say there definitely would have been more victims if he had not been stopped. His life was one long escalation of horrific behavior, and he would not have stopped killing once he got the taste. He told authorities that if he hadn't been captured, he had a hit list of around 30 people who he was planning to kill. Many of them believed that they were his friends. They had no idea of the horror that he kept hidden underneath the mask. Angela Fight's father, Wayne, told the Denver Post that he worries about the day when her two young children will learn the brutal way in which their mother died, and at that time will have to deal with this horror yet again. Angela's mother says she still can't get her head around the fact that Cody was nice to the kids. She said Angela's devastated children couldn't believe that their friend would have done this to their mom. Even from behind bars, Cody continues to charm women. He managed to find a new girlfriend while he was in jail for the murders, a woman he described as a trust fund baby from Phoenix. He's still out there, by the way. I looked him up on prison pen pals. He describes his daughter, who his ex-wife said he rarely saw, as the love of his life. He says that his guilty pleasures are romance novels and chocolate, and he says that helping others is his passion. Meanwhile, his ex-wives have said they're still haunted by the fact that they lived with a man who could pour on the charm like that, who on the surface seems so respectful and romantic, that they could have lived with someone for so long, looked at that cute, humble cowboy smiling in that black Stetson and jeans, and never known the evil that was hiding inside. Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? (laughs) Oh!